Well, good morning, church. Did you know that uh, your teaching pastor, Tim, could play and sing like that? Tim and Aaron and vocalists and instrumentalists, thank you for leading us in worship this morning and, and every Sunday morning. Thank you for that. We'd... If you have your Bibles, turn, turn again to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to continue our study today on the transformed life. And in this passage, although the exhortations and instructions of Romans chapter Chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, they seem to be strung together in no specific order with no apparent relationship to one another. But in the original Greek text, the exhortations are actually arranged very, very carefully with intention and with purpose. And there are two separate sections. Verse 9 introduces the subject of love. In a, in a very generic type of way. And then verses 10 and 13 show us how this love is to function. How a transformed Christ-like love will emerge from this transformation. Verse 9, if it were to be read literally in the original Greek text, would read something like, Sincere love is hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. The ESV translates it. If you're reading from the ESV, it translates it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And the Apostle Paul isn't just getting all sentimental and soft on us here. He's not just talking about butterflies and kisses and, and rainbows here. He is actually in, instructing his readers toward what is good, what is literally best them. He's urging his readers to diligently pursue these marks of a true Christ follower, to hate what is evil. That's an apostolic command. Cling to what is good. That's an apostolic command. If one or more of these true marks of, of a Christ-like love are missing from our lives, almost like a checklist, if one of these is missing from our lives, we know from the entirety of Scripture that we need to quickly return to our great high priest in confession, in repentance, in faith, in trust to him. And Paul describes this brotherly love in a generic sort of way, and then he describes how this brotherly love is to play out, how it will emerge, how it will operate. And there are basically nine ways. Let's come back up to speed over the weeks that we've been so far. There are nine ways that this brotherly Christ-like love will emerge. The first one is kindness to one another. Verse 10 instructs us, love one another with brotherly affection. More literally, it would say, in respect to the love of our Christian brothers and sisters, we are to be marked by a devotion that is characteristic of a loving, close-knit, mutually supportive family. Christians are literally family. Doesn't matter what your background is, whether you where you came from, doesn't matter what your race is, nationality doesn't matter, doesn't matter if you're rich, or doesn't matter if you're poor as Job's turkey, doesn't matter if you're beautiful or ugly, all of these descriptions are irrelevant because Christians are family. We've been bonded together as the family of God on earth, and literally we are spiritual kin. 
James Montgomery Boyce uh, says, said it, says it this way. He says that Christian devotion to one another is not to be a matter of liking, but of life. And truly, I think that's pretty evident here at First Baptist Nixa. I really do, that uh, we love one another with this type of affection. So the first function of Christ-like love is kindness to one another. The second function of Christ-like brotherly Christian love is preferring one another, literally outdoing one another in honor. And trust me, as I thought about this passage of Scripture and as Tim preached it, I realized that I prefer you guys way more than some of my own blood relatives. <laughs> and, and I think it's because Christ has knit us together as a spiritual family, a bond that goes so much deeper. Um, if we dig a little deeper into what Paul is saying, though, he is literally saying, in respect to honor, lead the way for one another. Be eager to show respect for one another. Set an example for one another. So in other words, don't wait around for people to recognize your contributions and to praise you. Um, instead, be alert, be aware of what they are contributing and honor them. Do you see how that might create an environment, how that might create a church environment um, of encouragement, of spurring one another forward? Wouldn't you love to be a part of a close-knit family that is constantly encouraging and honoring one another? At my house, uh, at my house I, like to, um, I like to make sure that Micah knows whenever I've done something amazing. Like, uh, hey Micah, did you notice that I cleaned your hair out of the uh, bathroom sink again? Uh, did you see that I vacuumed, washed, and waxed, and buffed your car? Uh, hey, Micah, did you see that I washed the dishes? Hey, Micah, did you see that I did a load of laundry? Don't be like me, okay? <laughs> be like the Apostle Paul. Lead the way for one another in recognizing and contributing um, to others. The third function of Christ-like love is this. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. What is Paul saying, literally? He's saying, don't be what? Lazy. Don't be lazy. Tim talked about this last week, and we were exhorted to serve the Lord right here in the ministries of First Baptist Nixa. And there are many different ways, as you saw that. The, the auditorium was lined with, with areas of service on the, on the tables. Many different ways for you to, to, to jump in and to use God's uh, God-given talents to you right here in the local church. Students included, I saw their names on several, several of the ministries that we, that we do here at First Baptist Nixa. The King James translates it, it this way. It says, not slothful in business. Now, certainly there's wisdom in saying, don't be slothful at your job, right? Uh, Marvin's not in here today. I think Marvin's in the nursery. But I was going to ask Marvin, if, if one of Marvin's employees turns out to be a sloth, what do you usually do with them? And I'm sure his answer would have been, I'll, I'll fire them. You know, they're, you're fired. Um, so yeah, if you work for Marvin and you turn out to be a sloth, turn the page, you're fired, okay? Uh, it's, it, nobody's really even going to feel sorry for you if you're lazy and you get fired. It's just common sense because you're a sloth. That's just common sense in business. To the, Christ, <laughs> amen. <laughs> to the Christ follower, though, what is our business? Our business or our work, being a Christ, is, is literally just being a Christ follower. That's 
It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So why is it then that we know better to, than to be slothful at our jobs but because, because we don't want to get fired by Marvin, right? But when it comes to the Christian life, the most important business, the very reason that God created us is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Why is it then that we hope that sanctification is just going to fall into our laps? Paul is saying, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't be slothful. Parents, last week we heard from Tim, don't be slothful at raising your kids. They're not going to train themselves. They're not going to discipline themselves. They're, they're begging for your attention, for your approval, for your encouragement. They're, they're begging for your attention. And they're begging for your preferring one another in your marriage. The command the command to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord goes to who? Parents, right? Parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The command goes to parents. Ministry leaders, don't be slothful in your place of ministry. Work hard at it. Some of you are thinking, I don't have a place of ministry. Well, according to this passage of Scripture that we studied last week, it's time to find a place of ministry and to work hard at it as unto the Lord. Um, don't be slothful at the kingdom of God. Businessmen and women, don't be slothful at your place of employment. Work hard at it. Honor Christ. Um, not just because Marvin's going to fire you, okay? <laughs> work hard because your work matters to God. It matters to God. Number four, be fervent in spirit. That word fervent is from a Greek word meaning to boil. So literally, a translation would be in respect to the Holy Spirit boiling. Now, usually when we think of boiling, we think of hot, right? We think of uh, anger, like when Marvin finds you being slothful. <laughs> I really wish he was in here because I'm picking on him. I planned on picking him all morning. Number five is this, serve the Lord. Colossians 3, 12 through 16. Instructs, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then verse 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? If we're truly bubbling over, boiling with the Spirit because the gospel is just truly so amazing to us, we're going to be serving the Lord just out of pure love for Christ. Sixth thing is this, and this is where we actually get into our text for today. Verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Verse 12 actually introduces three more instructions that go together. One, of, uh, one commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans paraphrases this verse like this. It says, insofar as we have cause 
to hope, let us be joyful. Insofar as we have cause of pain, let us patiently persevere. And insofar as the door of prayer is open to us, let us continue in it. At the very heart of these three instructions is the reference to hope. Now, I'm always fully aware that in a crowd this size, some of you woke up this morning desperately needing hope. Some of you fought to get out of bed this morning because you've been hoping for, for whatever it might be. Maybe you've been hoping for, for, this, uh, for a job that's more fulfilling in life. Or, or maybe you've been hoping that the, the spark of your marriage would return to your marriage. And, and right here, we read Paul's writing commanding us to rejoice in hope, and yet you just don't have it in you. Paul isn't suggesting that you just continue to try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's not trying to annoy you, like just stick up your chin and, and say, oh, the sun will come out tomorrow. He's, Paul doesn't want you to get stuck in a rut of just hoping for a new job or just hoping for that spark of marriage to return in, into your marriage. Um, he's actually commanding us, just like the song that we sang, to lift your eyes up. That our hope is from the Lord. What hope? What is this higher hope that he's telling us to, to raise our eyes to and to look towards? Paul is reminding us of the, very con- of the very confidence that every Christ follower has. That someday, Christ is going to return. Do you believe that? Christ is going to return. And there is coming with him a glory like we have never seen before. Titus 2.13 describes this blessed hope that Paul is talking about. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. So church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is coming a day when you will never wake up again feeling sick. There's coming a day when you'll never again have to say farewell to a loved one. There's coming a day when you'll never feel sorrow. There's coming a day when you will never have to watch the evening news and witness the tyranny of violence and evil and natural calamities and wars and rumors of wars. There's coming a day when you will wake up literally in the presence of Jesus Christ himself and that glory will be the most amazing and beautiful thing you have ever seen because his glory and his righteousness, amen, his glory and his righteousness and his accomplishment and his perfection and his love literally light up heaven. They give light to all of heaven. That's the hope that Paul is talking about. That's the hope. And if that's not enough hope for today, I don't know what is. Jesus is coming and he promised that he will transform us to be like him. Paul says rejoice in that hope because if you're rejoicing in that hope like Abraham 
you will literally be looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and whose builder is God. Now, why would Paul then, after coming off the heels of that, off of that hope, why would he then instruct us to be patient in tribulation? Paul reminds us to be patient because Christ prom- promised us in John 16, he said, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And Matthew 10.22 says, the one who endures to the end by grace through faith in Christ will be saved. So while we're waiting for this glory that is still to be revealed, we're not just to resign ourselves to to some type of fatalistic or, or stoic kind of mentality, but to be patient in tribulation. And while we're patient through tribulation, while we're waiting for Christ's glorious return, we are to number eight, be constant in prayer. A literal translation of this statement might be uh, in regard to prayer continuing, continuing in prayer. I, I think Paul used this word continuing, continuing or, or constantly because he knew that sometimes prayer is a challenge for us. Would you agree with that? Sometimes it's a challenge for us. And um, if you're, you might be like me um, in that I, I know I pray most often whenever I'm in the midst of a tribulation. I, I pray hardest and I pray the most when I'm right in the middle of it, right? Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, mighty prayer is most often produced by mighty trial. In times of in times of trial, in the context of this passage of Scripture, in times of trial, prayer will protect us from greed and fear. It will reorient our intellect and our emotions to the sovereign plan of God. And in times of prosperity, whenever things are really good, continuing in prayer will protect us from the sin of self-sufficiency. If we're living in this hope of the gospel, living patiently through tribulation, We will be constant in prayer, whether in the midst of a trial or in the midst of prosperity. We're very mindful that we are always in need of the Lord's mercy, whether we feel desperate for him or not. So constant, continuing prayer will remind us of our ever-abiding need for God's grace and for his guidance, which brings us to verse 13 Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, at first glance, again, this appears to be two distinct descriptions of of a life transformed by God's mercy. The first one seems to appear to be contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, share with God's people who are in need. And secondly, it it seems to say, seek to show hospitality or practice hospitality. But again, in the original Greek text, it actually combines these two ideas. It combines them, and it would say something like, in regard to the needs of the saints, participating, practicing hospitality. You see the difference? In regard to the need of the saints, participating and practicing hospitality. So Paul isn't just talking about uh, giving money to each other. He's, He's not just saying like, Uh, hey, I'm sorry, you've fallen on some hard times. Here's some money. 
out of my wallet. I hope you feel better. Okay, that's, that's not exactly what he's saying here. Paul seems to be thinking about, literally thinking about the needs of other Christ followers and actually identifying with them, empathizing with them, participating with them in their need, in the midst of their need. Okay, so now, of course, Paul's not, he's not minimizing this issue of how we're to handle our money and our possession. He's not undoing that. In fact, Paul already exhorted us back in verse 8, let the one who contributes do so in generosity and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So this issue of, of handling our money and possessions wasn't just a big deal to Paul. It was actually a huge deal for Jesus. Jesus spoke about money and possessions many times in the New Testament. He rebuked people who built bigger and better barns um, for the sake of their own comfort. He told stories and parables about money and possessions. Jesus actually said that by hoarding possessions, we can perish. And he actually said that by giving them away, we can lay up treasures in heaven. So money and possessions were a big deal to Jesus. How we handle our money and our possessions is one of the greatest indicators of how much or how little we cherish and trust our God. Jesus said it himself. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We read in Acts chapter 3, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what they had sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Can you imagine that? Like, can you picture that in your mind? What would that even look like today? What would that look like in today's culture? It would look radical in today's culture, wouldn't it? Well, it looked radical back then. I mean, it, it was, they, there was not a needy person among them, said, because those who had stuff sold their stuff so that the proceeds could be distributed. I mean, what is that? It, you, you can't even call that socialism because no one's forcing them to do it. Uh, literally, they, the, 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 the fame of Jesus was so important to them. The gospel had made such a transformation in their lives that apparently their stuff wasn't important to them. The fame and reputation and name of Jesus was. That's, that's absolutely amazing. Paul taught this to all the churches. He taught it um, he, to Titus. He wrote, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need and do not be unfruitful. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that the rehabilitated thief can store up more stuff for himself? No, it's so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Randy Alcorn says it this way. He says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And then Paul taught them to be disciplined and consistent, Um, in this generosity, not to just be spontaneous or impulsive. In 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the collection of the saints, as I I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, 
so that there will be no collecting whenever I come. So we've already been instructed that people who live under the mercies of God, people who know and feel a transformed mind overflowing into their emotions, people who know and feel the sheer, undeserved, lavish mercy of God will seek to reflect the mercy of God through the handling of their money and possessions. The whole orientation of the Christian is not to work to have, but to work to give. As John Piper would say, to give with a disciplined regularity. So in this verse, Romans 12, 13, Paul revisits how the transformed Christ follower handles money and possessions, only he deals with it more specifically. Not only will the mark of a disciplined um, not only will the mark of a disciplined regularity of gen- generosity with our money and possessions, but also we are bringing people happily into our home or, or our apartment. We're opening our homes to them. Contributing to the needs of the saints, that's giving money away for the sake of others' needs. Seeking to show hospitality, that's participating with them in their need, that's empathizing, that's drawing others in, not just for a meal now and then, but with a disciplined regularity, seeking hospitality. Hospitality was, listen, it was, this was wired into our, into our calling ever since Christ called us out. When Jesus sent his 12 disciples out to minister into his name, he told them in Matthew 10, he said, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two Um, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And then in Matthew 10, he says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Is that not amazing to think that when we welcome and we seek hospitality, Christ-like hospitality, we're welcoming the Lord Jesus into our home in his name. We're doing it in his name. And apparently, someday on Judgment Day, our hospitality is one of the things that Christ will count as evidence of our love for him. Listen to this. Matthew 25, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For as I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. That's amazing to think about, that by seeking Christ-honoring hospitality, we're opening our home to the Lord Jesus himself. And then the writer of Hebrews says something similar, but it's not quite as amazing, but still amazing nonetheless. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some of you have entertained angels unaware. So, If hospitality is such a big deal in the life of a Christ follower, why why is it so difficult for us at times? Um, Well, there's a few reasons uh, why we don't often contribute through hospitality as we ought. Here's here's some reasons. Reason number one, reasons why we don't often contribute as as we ought. Number one, we're often oblivious. Maybe you've just never thought about uh, contributing your money or, or opening your home. You're not a thief, okay? You've conquered that part, and that's, that's great. But now, God's calling you up just a little bit higher. 
So don't be oblivious anymore. Um, God calls us to, to contribute generously and to seek, to seek out hospitality. Number two, we're often careless. We're not oblivious. We know that generosity and hospitality are marks of a true Christ follower. We're just not intentional about it yet. We're not intentional about hospitality. So number two is don't be careless anymore. Give with a disciplined regularity. Open your home with a disciplined regularity. Number three, we're often greedy. You'll know if you're fighting greed because when you give, you'll be thinking of all the things that you could have bought if you hadn't have given. That's how you know that, that you're fighting greed on the inside. Okay, So some of you might even have a, a difficulty tithing because there's just some things that you'd like to add to your collection of stuff. Have you, have you ever known a greedy person? Have you ever noticed how their stuff is like really, really important to them? It's just really important. Listen, man, greed is bondage. It's bondage. So how can we be set free from greed? How can we be set free from this bondage? How can we be set free to intentionally give and regularly seek hospitality. Paul told the Ephesians elders, he said, um, in all things I have showed you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So don't live in bondage. Be free from it. Number four, we're often fearful that we won't have what we need. We're fearful that we won't have what we need. So greed, on one hand, focuses on what we don't have, but we would like to have it. Fear focuses on, fear focuses on not having what we need. And what about hospitality? Why is it that hospitality is often difficult for us? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons why we struggle with hospitality. I'll give you just a couple. Uh, here's, here's the first one. My house isn't nice enough. Okay, have we ever felt that way? My house isn't nice enough to have this or that person over. Or I haven't had time to clean in forever. My house is a wreck. Or the bathroom is a nuclear disaster area. I don't want my guests going in there, okay? Listen, we've got to get over the idea that when, that when the house is finally perfect, then we'll start finally having people over, okay? Several of you have been over to, to our house for lunch, um, for lunch or for dinner, and, and you know that we have an elderly golden retriever, right? His name is Keller, and Keller loves to shed fur everywhere. I mean, he sheds his fur like it's going out of style. I, I think we have a picture of our dog. Is he, is he up? Yep, there he is. That's Keller, okay? And actually, um, you can't really tell from this picture right now. It appears that he is being slothful in zeal right now, okay? That he is fast asleep, but he... He's not being slothful in zeal. This dog right now is, um, he is actually very busy and active at shedding his fur on my perfectly clean wood floor right now. I, I guarantee you that's what he's doing at the house right now. Um, so on Sunday morning, if we're planning to have guests over on Sunday afternoon, we'll vacuum that morning, okay? We'll vacuum all of the house that morning, and we come home six and a half hours later wanting to walk into a crock pot that we started that morning, and suddenly the air conditioner kicks on right about the time that our guests walk in the door, and it, his fur that he's been busy, act, 
you know, actively shedding, the air conditioners catch it, and it suddenly looks like the wild, wild west with, like, little golden retriever, like, tumbleweeds all over the floor. It's embarrassing. It's ridiculous. And if, if we don't be care- if we're not careful, we, we don't like to have people over because it's embarrassing of all the dog hair. We try to keep it clean, okay? Uh, but that guy, we're, we're pretty excited for him to go on to be with the Lord, <laughs> actually. So... Uh, Maybe maybe you're worried that uh, your guests are, since they're not familiar with your house, that they're going to accidentally open, thinking that they're going into a restroom, or maybe they're going to exit, you know, it's time to be done with lunch, and they think they're going to the exit, but they actually open that one closet, you know, that you stuffed everything into right before they came over, and it comes crashing down on them. Uh, maybe, maybe you're worried that they'll invade your privacy. Like, you know, hey, can I use your restroom? And, you know, you're worried, like, what if they go through my bathroom cabinets or what? Okay, I have a solution for that, too. Uh, what, a while back, a couple years back, I was staying with my brother. I think we were getting ready to go fishing the next morning or something. So I was staying at my brother's house, and, and for some reason I had gotten, I got into his medicine cabinet right above the sink. I was probably looking for an allergy pill or something. I don't know what it was. I wasn't trying to be nosy. Just, I was looking, it's my brother's house, you know, like his house is my house and my house is his house. So I opened the medicine cabinet and very carefully placed right next to the bottle of VO5 hair treatment. I don't know why he uses VO5. I don't even know what that is. Very carefully placed right next to that in his medicine cabinet was a box of Africa's best hair treatment for women. Africa's best hair treatment is a box. I mean, it's like right, right there when you first open. And I just thought that was a little bit odd, okay? <laughs> I thought that was a little bit odd because, first of all, my brother's hair was pretty short, right? <laughs> Secondly, he's not from Africa. Third, his hair was already starting to thin. So it, I come out of the bathroom, and I say, little brother, why do you have this box of Africa's best women's hair treatment in your bathroom cabinet? And he just, with a straight face, he looked at me and said, why are you going through my bathroom cabinets? <laughs> and all I could say was, touche, my friend, touche. So I thought that was brilliant, and so now I keep a box of Africa's best hair treatment in my, <laughs> in my bathroom. And it's for all of you, okay, in case you come over and you come out and wonder, that's why it's there, okay? It's, it's just in case. Um, the point is this morning that don't wait until your house is perfect to open it up to hospitality. If you've got big pet hair tumbleweeds blowing around like we do, just kindly apologize and say, sorry, we live here with a geriatric dog and we're hoping he dies soon. You know, just, I'm, joke, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Literally, don't, don't, don't apologize. Don't apologize for your house. It's the house that God gave you. And when you apologize for your house, it sends off the signal that you're more focused on your house than you are on your guest. Be focused on your guests. Invite them in with hospitality. Maybe you struggle with hospitality because you're worried that people will judge you because of all your nice stuff. Well, my question is, based on what we've just read, is why are you so worried about your nice stuff? We'll leave it at that. It's a work, uh, maybe one of your reasons for um, being, that hospitality is difficult for you is that it's a lot of work to to make dinner. Um, I have a solution for that, too. Sam's Club has these amazing trays of frozen lasagna. Am I right, Ashton? 
amazing trays of frozen lasagna, all you have to do is preheat the oven and then not burn the lasagna. <laughs> That's it. It's super easy, and, and everyone loves lasagna. I know, that, I know that the food channel, I know that the food channel wants us all to believe that it's all about the food, right? I know that. Let me just tell you something. It's not about the food. It's about the fellowship. It's about getting to know one another. It's about identifying with one another. It's about contributing to the needs of the saints and participating with them, empathizing with them, living life together. So if, if, you're, worried, if you're not a good cook, get a, pick up a, can of, uh, a tray of lasagna from Sam's or, or whatever. We're not, I mean, we're not amazing cooks. Mike is a great cook. I tell her all the time, though, I just... I'd eat her cooking even if it tastes like bad gravy on a Goodyear tire. So we, that, that's why we often go to lasagna, go to, to lasagna right? I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> exactly. I'll stop talking. I love you, sweetheart. love you. We could list, literally I'm moving on right now. Did you see that quick transition? I'm moving on. We could list reasons all day long about how, we, about how and why we struggle with, to show hospitality, but the point that Paul is trying to convey is seek to participate, to identify with people through hospitality, especially the saints of God. Contribute to the needs of the saints through hospitality. And don't just, get, don't just invite people that you already know, okay? Seek to show hospitality to the widowed woman, or, or to the widowed man, or to the single person, or to the elderly couple that I guarantee you is going to have some great life advice and great wisdom to give you. Pursue hospitality and do it with a disciplined, hope-fueled service to the Lord. So, what if this morning we are stuck in bondage to greed and fear? How can we break free from it? How can we live free? The answer to that question is all the way back in verse 1, Romans 12, 1. It's, it says, Paul, Paul says this, he says, I appeal to us, Paul appeals to us by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, rejoice in hope, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Listen, the remedy to greed and fear is literally that Jesus died and rose again to make absolutely certain that for every one of us who trusts in him, that the all-powerful, all-knowing God would be lavishly generous and lovingly hospitable to us every day, forever. The mercies of God were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they are new every morning with a brand new generosity and with a fresh hospitality every single day you remember that acronym that tim gave us a couple weeks ago the acronym that doesn't spell anything in particular remember what it was aptat aptat when we recognize fear or greed we recognize or when we recognize self-sufficiency rising up in it with us first what's the first thing that we we do we acknowledge to god that apart from christ we can do nothing that's in john 15 5 and apart from Christ, we also acknowledge to God that the power to do good literally does not reside in us. So acknowledge that to God. He already knows it. Acknowledge it to him. Confess it to him. And then the second thing was what we pray. 
Pray that God would bear the fruit in us and ask God to do in you what you cannot do for yourself so that you can be generous and hospitable to others. After we pray, we what? We trust. We find a promise of God and we rest in it. We find a promise of God such as Romans 8.32 that says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Or Philippians chapter 4, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And while we're trusting in God's promises, while we're trusting in these promises that he's given us, the next step is to act. Act in obedience to God's promises that he's given us. Literally, as Tim said it, act the miracle. Act the, act the miracle of giving. Act the miracle of pursuing hospitality. And then, the next step is that we thank God for granting us the will, the energy, the power to do by the Spirit what we could not have done by the flesh. As Tim articulated a few weeks ago, the power is God's and not ours. And therefore, so is the glory. And so turn around and render the glory to him for doing that in us and through us. John Piper articulates it that the remedy for fear and greed is literally the pleasure of Christ's presence and the certainty of his promise. This is how we become generous and hospitable. We enjoy, we enjoy and we expect God's lavish provision in all our giving, in all our hospitality. Because, because God's promises, um, because God promises to be our all-sufficient treasure. He promises to be that. He promises to be our all-sufficient treasure. We then, in turn, can be generous and hospitable to others. So, as we begin to wrap up this morning, are there any rewards for contributing to the needs of the saints through hospitality? You bet there are. Let me give you just five this morning. Through our generosity and hospitality, contributing and identifying with one another, the suffering of the saints will be relieved, or at least diminished. We, we lift a burden from one another. We relieve stress from one another. We give hope to one another, and that in itself is a reward. Secondly, the glory of God is made evident. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Generosity through hospitality displays God's goodness to you. Okay? It displays God's goodness to you. The reason God gives us money and homes is so that we can use them in such a way that other people see that money and homes aren't our gods. God is our God. Number three, thanksgiving to God will be exponentially multiplied. 
2 Corinthians 9.12 says that the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. Not only are we thankful for our money and for our homes, but through our generosity and hospitality, we make many people thankful to God. So um, our thanksgiving to God is multiplied exponentially. Number four, our love for God and his love for us is confirmed. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has the, wor- the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, when we give generously and when we open our homes, God's love is confirmed in our lives. We're real. We're not phonies. We're not imposters. So give generously. Open your home. And then immediately turn around and thank God that he gave you the desire and the ability to give generously and to open your home to others. Number five, we store up treasure in heaven. Matthew 6 says, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys And where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So to summarize these five rewards, we could say it like this. The reward is the the display of God's glory, the good of others, and the joy of treasuring Christ together forever. Romans 12, 12 and 13, that passage is literally... Offering us a new way to live. A a way to live in freedom. So, therefore, on the authority of Scripture, I exhort and encourage all of us today. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. These are the marks of a transformed life. Would you bow with me this morning in prayer? I'd like to close today with a prayer penned by John Piper. Oh Lord, we long for life to be as free from fear and greed as as birds with wings to fly are free and lilies have no need. Our spirits surge to break the chains of love to earthly things, to strip our souls of worldly reins and ride on eagles' wings. So, Father, make us free to give and teach by heaven's beam that in a spring no life can give until it makes a stream. For freedom, Christ has set us free O church, do not be ensnared, but treasure Christ and you will see the glory he prepared.